And actually the ceiling was falling down. We're saying our names and where we came from. And over and over the hill, over the hill every morning. on the bike. That not meaning old over the hill. <laughs> uh, not <laughs> on the bike <laughs> over the hill. But you're not the only biker who came no, over. Here today. Yeah, she came from Mill Valley, yeah. over two hills. Yeah. yeah. What's your name? Arena. Arena. <laughs> Fairfax. Fairfax. <laughs> so you're stuck. Where do you live? Well, at the moment, I'm living in Tiburon. And I'll probably move to Nevada. Uh-huh. <coughs> My name's Doug from San Rafael. And I've been coming on and off for, I think, eight or nine years, maybe? Doug. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I'm Mark from San Rafael. I think retreat's probably 15 years or more. You know, it's a whole interesting talk about. I'm I'm happy about the fact that uh, people are um, fairly. Uh, many people are fairly. Um, uh, what do you call it? Consistent about coming on Wednesdays. And uh, in the beginning, like a decade or two ago, I used to say, you know, this is just like church. You come every week. And it was in the very beginning, back in the 70s or 80s, 80s more, uh, it was a period of revolt against what people thought of as organized religion. So you couldn't say, I'm going to church. So I'd say, oh, I, I remember at one point we were talking about bringing pot lunches. And I said, oh, that'll be just like church. It's a church. No, it's like a bad <laughs> word, church. And, I'm, and since I'm very happy to call, to call it, you know, to think of people as once a, once a week at least. You have a Sabbath, you go, you talk about what it is that you're trying to do and how we belong. So I'm happy about this. And talking about churches, it's beautiful. You know, so. My name's Jane. For a while, yeah. My name's David. I live in San Francisco, and I've been coming to Spirit Rock for a little over 20 years. You have. I remember. I've forgotten the name of your companion that you came with a lot. George. George, George yeah. I remember him as well. Wow. We could say what? We'll say wow. One, two, three. Wow. <laughs> okay.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I thought. Yeah, it was one of the things that you know we we didn't choose this as the place that we wanted to have a retreat center. Uh, the the place chose us more or less because it became available. But it was serendipitous because we wanted to have a, a center that could be at, when it functioned as a retreat away from home, really rural, which it is and at the same time be not so far away that it wasn't approachable and reachable. Uh, it's a little far, and the transportation is not, the public transportation isn't good out here, but uh, it works. What I'm hopeful, you know, when we had that um, three-day non-residential retreat over uh, um, Labor Day, we, we, ha- we hired a bus that came from the North Oakland station. And I'm hopeful that sometime, maybe there'll be enough people who come on Wednesday mornings that we could have a bus that came from um, the Bonaire Center, say. But some people come, but even the people who come from the East Bay could park in the Bonaire Center and, and, and come this last bit of time. Could you provide song sheets? Oh, <laughs> we have to have a song leader, a monitor. <clears throat> no, we'll all meditate on the bus. <laughs> Actually, we never said to the people on the bus, sit quietly going and coming. I wonder if they did. I don't know. We, we did? No, 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 we didn't. No, no, actually, I thought it was fine not to. I, cause my whole point of that retreat yeah. was that it was supposed to be in the middle of life. Yeah, and I like the fact that it was, um, it was a hybrid of both silence mm-hmm. and a social media. Yeah, 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 and the same thing on the bus too. Some people were quiet. Some people had headphones on. Some people were exercising the gap. Yeah, no, no. I think it's fine. I, 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 I thought that was fine. And I, since I'm an old school teacher, in both sense of the terms, I'm old, and I also have always been a school teacher. Uh, I have that gene that's always prepared to give an assignment, you know. So that people getting on the bus, it occurs to me to say, well, you could give a topic that they could do or not do. So I have to hold myself in from holding, from having a topic. And I mean, these are grown-ups; they can figure it out. You know? <laughs> so now it's all confusing because we've been saying names. So we passed by Brahmini and Ace, but we'll go back. This is Ace Liebman. There he is. His wife, Brahmini Liebman, uh, uh, who's a yoga teacher along with uh, Jashoda, who's sitting next to Brahmini. And we've talked about sometime having yoga here in the morning for after was your idea. Not before 9, but from, from uh, 11.15 until noon. How many people would enthusiastically want to do that? Huh. Oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Is that a dozen people? Do that again. How many people would stay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 14, 15. The rule of thumb around here is that this kind of is like the Queen Mary in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't turn on a dime, usually. But... Um, but I, I could find out, I mean, because it doesn't require a great deal of, I don't think, administrative planning. Uh, 
I think that would be a marvelous thing to say, okay, everybody is leaving leave, everybody is there. We have, we have, we could have mats in there if we don't have mats. We have room back there. Everybody who didn't so far say their name into the room today, please stand up. Okay, now, because now we have to pick up the pace. <laughs> John. It's... Okay. Okay. Do you know John because he comes the same back road as you? All right, okay, because speaking of buses, speaking of buses, all those people who want to stay five minutes this afternoon and make carpools, that would be great. Oh, okay. Thank you, Sandy, for coming when you're here. Hi, I'm Lisa, and I live in uh, San Anselmo. I've been coming off and on for about four and a half years since I moved down from Seattle. Great. I'm Nancy. I recently moved to New York. Uh, I'm living in Lima, and this is my first time here. Oh, wow. Well, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And I never, in all my years, met someone who lived in Olima. They're actually people who live in Olima. Oh, okay. Wow. Hi, I'm David. I live in Fairfax. I'm relatively new to Spirit Rock, but it's a sweet blessing to have this facility. Thank you. Hi, I'm Donna. I'm from Sonoma. Oh, well, well, by all means, welcome. Come again. It is like church, you know, you can come anytime you want. Nobody takes attendance. I'm Jim Sonoma, first time to Well, well, the traffic is bad, though, in the morning coming down when you. Do you come on 37? No, we actually came the back way through Petaluma and U Street. Oh, that's very good. Much nicer, much nicer. You see, I am an old school teacher. I can't leave anything alone. I'm Joy, and I'm from San Rafael, and I've been coming for a couple months. Welcome. And I'm reading your book. Um, It's easier. Well, see, because I always, I, I did not make up that title, Joy. I like to tell people that I wrote every single word in that book myself. I did, except the title. It was not the title that I gave it. Um, they, they, the the um, sales department at Harper San Francisco said the words that sell books are easy and happy and love and heart. And the more of those things, simple, easy, the direct way to open your heart in six steps is what sells a lot of books. So they named it It's Easier Than You Think. And I would like to put a disclaimer under that that says it's also harder than you can imagine. So that... <laughs> So I've always felt that about that title, but thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm Rita McLean. I live about 100 feet No, I live in Forest Mills. It's three minutes, and it's wonderful to go somewhere wonderful in three minutes when you live in Forest Yeah. Karina and I live in Nevada. I haven't been for a while, and it's good to be here. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. 
Welcome, welcome. Wow, welcome. Wow, huh? That's beautiful. I'm Kathy. I think I've been first came here ten years ago, and then I've been coming more often about the last six months. And I'm from Nevada, but I have another activity after this, so I can't carpool. Mm. <laughs> I'm Julie. I'm from San Francisco. I've been coming on and off for about eight or nine years, and. To the Wednesday session solidly every week for about two years, but I've been away for three months, so I am so grateful to be back. Oh, good. Well, welcome back. I'm Jessica. I am from, I live in L.A. currently, and this is my first time in Sarah. Well, welcome. You live in L.A. currently. Yes. So you just happen to be up here now. Um, I was in San Francisco, and then last night I was in Sebastopol, and just moving around a little. All right. Well, welcome. That was a very long time ago. That was in the 90s. We had no buildings. And Thich Nhat Hanh came, and it was the biggest event we had ever had. It was a monumental planning activity. And he spoke at an outdoor platform somewhere out here. And there were people all the way up the hill. Uh, Who was at that? Remember that? Yeah, it was a long time ago. Somehow he was there, uh, and I'd either, I think we all did the experience of peeling an orange. Didn't we all do the peeling an orange? Did they give out oranges and we all peeled? I think so. That was, I think they gave out tangerines, and we all, everybody, thousands of people, sat and peeled a tangerine mindfully and smelled it and looked at it and did that together contemplatively. Sometime, again, we'll t- maybe, maybe after we sit a little bit, or maybe we'll come into what we talk about today. Uh, everybody's co- everybody who's come here today or has come before or has been coming for, since forever, uh, it would be wonderful to have a discussion about uh, what do you hope is going to happen from coming here? You know, that, that really, it's not so much what do you do... Uh, uh, now it really isn't even what do you do or is it pleasant I mean you wouldn't come back if it wasn't in some way pleasant 
But I think we also come because we are imagining, oh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, is it not on? Oh, once again, wait a minute. Better? Better. So, uh, I, I think that the principal word for, uh, in, in terms of spiritual practice, is transformation. Where I, I am hoping that something will happen to me, that I, I will be different. Is that an odd thing to say, or are you here because you think something will be different? Also, all those people who said, like, like, like Rocky said, you've been here forever. Do you think you're different? You know, I'm not, this is not a test. <laughs> okay, because uh, what I want to talk about today is why are we doing this, really? What's the long time? How many people would say who have come a long time, been doing something like this for a while, I am changed, I'm a different person? And how many people would say, fundamentally, I'm the same person? I have both hands up, by the way. <laughs> Fundamentally, I'm the same person, and I'm a different person. I have certain mind habits that are different from what they used to be. So I want to talk about that. Last week, we talked about uh, uh, the, the practice when we're sitting of telling the mind, relax, whenever it gets caught in something. Just relax. Don't worry about it. The week before, we had the practice of locating the breath as we sat and making some uh, conscious effort to be with the attention as it's with the breath week to week. So we can uh, reprise those and we can add another one. Let's, all, let's put them all together. Uh, and we'll sit, <clears throat> we'll sit oh, maybe 35 minutes, maybe even 40. <laughs> sit in a way that's comfortable for you. One of my friends likes to say, sit dignified. That's such an interesting posture instruction, dignified. I like it because it usually reminds me to sit with my back up straight. And if my back is up straight, then the breath goes in and out in its easiest way. Listen to the silence.
I often find that if I sit in an alert posture and I put my attention in the whole room around me, as I do when I'm listening to the noises here and there, sounds near and far, that my body presents itself to my attention. It's just a little bit different from bringing the attention to the body or to the breath. If I sit tall and rest my awareness in the whole space around, I find that my body presents itself to me. I feel that I'm sitting in whatever posture I'm sitting. And I feel my body rhythmically getting larger to let breath in and then settling down again as the breath leaves it. It's a particular way in which the awareness is that the body is breathing and the awareness knows it. It's a little bit different from I am breathing. It amounts to the same thing. But in some way it becomes so fascinating, more fascinating to me. Like, look at that. Body breathing all by itself. Meeting awareness that registers it. Far out. and keeps doing that. As you sit and the awareness rests with that coming and going of breath, if you discover that the awareness is relaxed and the breath is rhythmic, you don't need to do anything. Thoughts arise from time to time, but they often just arise and pass away. They don't make any particular consequence in the mind. If you find that a thought arises and it engages your attention for a while, and the connection with the breath arriving and passing away isn't so steady, because here's this thought that's knocking at the door of your mind, you say to yourself, relax. 
it's likely that the thought will go away and the breath will continue. You can even relax if the thought doesn't go away. But sometimes the instruction relax. just dispels that thought of the moment and the mind rests easier, the awareness rests easier. If you find during the time that we sit quietly that your attention becomes really tangled up in some protracted thought or some engaging feeling somewhere else that's not so relaxed or comfortable. You might think of the instruction from Thich Nhat Hanh and on the next breath in, think to yourself, breathing in, I calm my body and breathing out, I smile. That particular instruction, particular gata phrase is very good for restoring a relaxed and quiet mind. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. So we have three things that the mind and the attention can be doing. And then we'll sit.
as we continue to sit in these few last minutes together, I invite you to think about speaking into this space, people or persons that you're particularly thinking about this morning, who, uh, whose name and situation you'd like to share. I've been thinking this morning about um, my cousin Judy, who grew up down the street from me. Uh, we're about the same age, and uh, our parents, my, my mother and her father were first cousins. And uh, her husband, Gordon, died uh, on Sunday night. And I heard about it yesterday. And um, he was 83 years old. And he died at a Rosh Hashanah dinner with his wife and his children and his grandchildren. And he suddenly died. And um, I'm just thinking about Judy with a lot of affection and Gordon. And the sometimes good luck of karma to have things happen when they do, where they do. Who are you thinking about this morning? I'm thinking about my daughter who is working very hard and that only getting a few hours of rest and just praying for her safety and health. almost like an aunt to me, who is turning 94 today, longtime activist, widow of a Spanish Civil War vet, uh, one of the family members of Grandmothers for Peace, and I'm hoping that I can attend a birthday celebration for her with her beloved Fort Point game that hiked every Thursday morning. Well, now they don't hike anymore, but they sit at Fort Point and then go out to lunch. And I think they're going to celebrate her birthday tomorrow. And I'm going to try to make it. I'm thinking of my grandson, who turns two in two weeks. I'm thinking of my sister-in-law in Oregon, whose brother is in Switzerland, and I mentioned a few weeks ago. <coughs> that he had just had, had throat cancer and had a surgery where he had his trachea and larynx and lymph nodes removed. And he was doing so well and was really looking forward to learning how to speak a different way. And yesterday, he had uh, an artery break and um, he has no more brain function. So I talked to my sister-in-law this morning, and, and she said that they were, she was hearing from Switzerland, talking to the doctors, and they were probably just going to take him off of life support. Mm -hmm. 
my sister-in-law, whose house burned a month ago, whose mother died 10 days ago, and now her brother, her, her very closest friend, her brother. So, send her all my love. dealing with the um, loss of a partner and <coughs> his own health and yes, he told me yesterday they amputated his leg below the knee and he sounded good but it's a lot and so I'm thinking of these dear ones in my life. Thinking about my uh, four-year-old daughter who has gone through so many different transitions in the, the past year and has started at a new school, a third school, in the last four months of being in the Bay, and I just wish for ease in this next transition. And I'm just also thinking about the electorate of this country, and I wish them peace and ease as we go through the next month of this election process. I'm, I'm thinking of my beautiful nephew and his new bride who are having um, some challenges about getting pregnant and I just wish for them a little being to come to them, to come somewhere. <laughs> they will be such glorious parents. Thinking of my friend Heather, pregnant with her first child, I'm wishing them well. And also the people of Haiti and Cuba and the Bahamas and Florida who are facing a pretty terrific hurricane right now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat>
starts back at work next week after the birth of her son, and I know it's going to be a really rough transition for her, and I wish her strength. I'm thinking about how remarkable it is that we each of us have the personal concerns of our near and dear and our global concerns for each other and the planet and humanity and creatures and beings everywhere. The mind and heart being so amazingly able to countenance the enormity of the situation that we find ourselves living in and at the same time be so spectacularly connected to the individual tiny pieces of that immense reality that we know as kin and friends. It's like an elastic heart that stretches from here all the way around the world. May all beings take care of each other and move forward in this fragile and beautiful world together. My friend Sharon Salzberg wrote a book a long time ago called uh, A Heart as Wide as the World. And you think about it, that we have this amazing capacity to be thinking of this granddaughter or this as yet unborn child or even as yet unconceived child. And at the other side, to be able to think about everybody's child and mean them both. It's amazing that we have that capacity and that we want to have that capacity um, uh, there's a a line that sometimes people quote out of the um, early teachings of the Buddha where he says uh, everything that's dear to us causes pain Uh, 
which in a certain way is true, because once we make something dear to us, since everything is fragile and everything is temporal, uh, we don't want to lose it. And uh, it sounds like a very um, cool kind of teaching, like, and in fact, the, the early teachings of the Buddha, it's possible to read them as cool and detached. But everybody wants so much to have dear. You know, we spend our whole life looking for people to make dear to us and to increase our fold of people that we have dear to us. And we rejoice when we get more people in our fold. I always think about... Uh, uh, some particular woman whose name I've now forgotten uh, who uh, used to come quite regularly to this Wednesday morning class through her pregnancy and then she obviously wasn't here for a while as her child was born and then she came back and she said you know what I've learned this was her first pregnancy she said um, when I got pregnant and that then when I had the child everybody said congratulations, great, wonderful terrific, she said and it is wonderful and terrific and great she said but nobody told me that you have a child and you mortgage your heart for the rest of your life and you do and you want to do it again and again Elizabeth is, is, Elizabeth, is this getting um, taped what I'm saying does anybody know Oh, it's a, it was on, okay. Because I didn't see anybody back there is why I noticed. I love it that people listen all over the place. The, and, and, I, and I hear about it sometimes, and I'm, I'm just thrilled to think here we are in California, and tomorrow people will be listening all over the place. I always hope I'm going to say something good. <laughs> well, I always hope I'm going to say something good, but anyway, particularly... Uh, I'm always thinking, as we go around and people say, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that. There's always something that I think about. Who even thought that that could happen to people? You know, there's a thing that I haven't thought about yet. There's a thing that I haven't thought about. So what I wanted very much to talk about this morning is uh, how we think about, particularly, what we're doing here. As I said it earlier when we were just starting, that everybody has been uh, coming to Spirit Rock either just today for the first time or for, in some cases, 20 years or more. And we keep coming back. And why do we do this? Uh, um, you know, one time I was... I forgot, I forgot this. Uh, I was... Uh, Sitting, a, a cousin of mine who lives here in the county, and his father, um, just a little bit older than I am, oh, 10 years ago, maybe, his father came out to live with his son, uh, a relative of mine, because he had been diagnosed with an incurable cancer and he was dying. And in the end, I spent a lot of time with him. And uh, I got a phone call in the middle of the night one night that said, you know, Danny's just died. So I drove up to Nevada, and there was a woman who had been living in and taking care of Danny uh, along with the cousin. 
um, when the cousin went to work during the day and all of that. And I knew her uh, because I'd been visiting him a lot. So we sat with him. He'd passed, and we sat with him through the night. Talked about what a nice man he'd been. And in the morning, uh, the arrangements were made, and people came to get him. And uh, then she and I were both going to leave. And uh, it was a Wednesday morning, actually, when I was about to come here. And she said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going to go to Spirit Rock. And uh, there's a group that comes there on Wednesday mornings. She said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go. Uh, I, I'm gonna, she lives in the East Bay. She said, my church has a Wednesday morning church service. So I'm going to go do that. My son-in-law is a preacher there, and I normally go if I'm not away working. So I said, oh, great. I said, uh, is it a service with a lot of uh, singing and uh, chanting? And she said, yeah, it is. It's, it's, she said, actually, sometimes it's pretty noisy because it's singing and clapping and stamping sometimes. She said, it's great. She said, what do you do at Spirit Rock? I said, well, <laughs> we actually sit quietly for long periods of time together. She said, oh. I said, make you feel better, the stamping and, 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 and uh, singing together? She said, yes. I said, does it make you feel better that you sit quietly together? I said, yes. And, you know, I just remember it so well because everybody finds their way to, to discover how their mind is going to feel happy in this challenged world, you know, that we don't get out of um, other than leaving. And uh, that was actually the question of the Buddha when I asked before today about why, why are you coming here? Why do I come here? Uh, for all kinds of reasons, I would answer the question. I think I became a nicer person in 30 years, 30, whatever it is, coming on 40. And my husband always says when I teach that, that I became a nicer person, I became kinder. He reliably always says, you were always kind, so. And, uh, but I'm, I insist that I've become kinder. And I think that's actually true. And as a result, I am happier. I, don't, I, I like to think I don't have grudges now. Or if I start building up a grudge, I uh, notice it and I undo it. Don't you? Yeah. And it, is anybody raise their hand? How many, how many people are erasing grudges as part of their practice? It's not be, erasing grudges. It's not because I want a Girl Scout badge for erased grudges. It's, I, I, I really got to understand that the grudges are, are, um, embitter my mind. I, I think that's the most helpful word, by the way. The, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a West Coast word where I grew up on the East Coast. People used to use bitter as a mind adjective quite a lot. They would say, so-and-so is a bitter woman. I don't know if people say that. Do you know that? People who grew up on the West Coast, did you say bitter? The other word they don't say on the West Coast is nasty. It was a nasty day. They say that on the East Coast. It was nasty and she was bitter. They don't say that here, probably because it's never nasty. But But I want to have an unembittered mind. It's very hard. Somebody made a prayer for us in this electoral season. It's so hard not to have an embittered mind. It's really hard. 
because all of the indignation, which it's so easy for indignation to arise. And the thing with the indignation is it, um, it's, it's very seductive. You could really get indignant about that. Can, can you believe what so-and-so said? It has a lot of, brings up a lot of energy. And to say, you know what? I don't need this. It's embittering my mind. I, uh, I, in my yesterday's mail, you probably got the sample voting book in the mail yesterday. Didn't you get that in the mail? And with the note that said, we're mailing out the ballots on the 10th. So the 10th is next Monday. So the ballot is going to come next Monday, and I'm going to mail it next Tuesday. And then I'm going to be finished, because I did whatever I can do. Back to what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to keep my mind unembittered, because I'll be a happier person. And I'm really trying to be unfrightened. And towards that end, I really am interested in what makes the mind unfrightened. You know, the thing is, I I think what makes the mind unfrightened, you remember last week and the week before, we talked about wise understanding and wise intention. What do I want to do and based on what? In fact, I'm really understanding that there are certain things that are true, like everything is passing. Everything is changing all the time. And that uh, things change, uh, things happen because other things happen. The Buddha said there are three things that happen. That things happen because other things happen. It's a lawful cosmos. I always tell the story, practically always, about hearing that line from my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who spoke in a very heavy New York accent. So he said it's a lawful cosmos. And because of that accent and because of my mind, I thought he said it's an awful cosmos. <laughs> and I heard him say that at a time that I was going through some particularly depressed time myself. So I agreed with him, actually. (laughs) But that wasn't what he said. It's actually lawful. Things happen because other things happen. If you step off a cliff, you fall because there is gravity. And if the engines on the plane fail, the plane falls down. You might or might not perish, depending. But it has to do with the engines failing, not a thought that you had. Uh, that things happen because other things happen, and sometimes even uh, remote things. This, um, who knows how this really quite devastating hurricane that's coming up through the through the Caribbean and onto the East Coast. Who knows where its origins started and how much it has to do with global warming, and how much it's an, a sign of the predictions that the global warming and the ocean warming is going to make more and more storms that are more and more vigorous. Uh, But things happen because other things happen. There are three things that the Buddha said. Three things things happen because other things happen, that everything is always changing, and that to uh, be in contest, in conflict with what's happening is to create suffering in the mind. That to be able to say, this is what's happening. You know, that we come back all the time to, to be able to change what we can change and accept what we can't change and know the difference, which is really the serenity prayer. 
and say, this is out of our hands. You know, it used to be when people had more of um, um, a sense that there was an outside force that determined what happened. The phrase, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, made sense to people, and they took, um, they took courage from it, maybe. But I think it's, it's a way of saying this is out of our hands. There are a lot of things that are out of our hands. And to be able to know that and say that's the way it is. In the story of the Buddha and his beginning to go out and uh, search for himself for the end of suffering, which meant the end of the mind in contest with what's happening, the fourth sight that he saw, in addition to old age and sickness and death, said, wow, that happens to everybody, was a monk who was uh, relaxed of visage and from which he took away the the lesson that we could live in the middle of a world full of challenge where everything that's dear to us, we lose unless they lose us first. That's just the way it works. And that you could do that and say, this is okay. You could still engage in life and you could still be excited about it and you could still be excited about trivia. Like, well, here we are, we're thinking about this afternoon is the wild card game for are the Giants going to win? In the sphere of the cosmos... How important is the Giants winning this afternoon? How many people made a note to watch it? There you go. (laughs) In the sphere of the cosmos, it's not a big deal, but we have a mind that's interested in uh, global warming and also the Giants' wild card possibility. (laughs) How many people checked 538 this morning, (laughs) 538.com? Joe and I check every week because we drive over together and we look to see what's the odds in the election. It's an amazing to have a human mind. I wanted particularly to read to you because we're talking about uh, what are we going to discover firsthand in meditation that's going to free our mind from its habit of worrying, its habit of fretting, its habit of lamenting. The first line of the, uh, for the, the Sermon on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness says, this is the sole way of monks for the ending of grief and lamentation. So uh, my friend Jack Cornfield has retranslated this to, this is a very good way, oh friends. So it's not so parochial, the sole way. And it's so, not so uh, gender biased. So this is a very good way, oh friends, for the ending of grief and lamentation. Really the arising of wisdom. And the arising of wisdom, fundamentally in the, in the construct that we worked on last week and the week before with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, is uh, uh, understood to bring about equanimity in the mind and through that equanimity to be able to see clearly what's the truth. And having seen the truth, being able to say, this is what's happening. It can't be other. So here I am. I'll do it the best I can. That's about, sometimes people say, oh, I get it. Buddhism is just about being sensible. In a way, it's very sensible. This is how things are. But this is, so this is the way I wanted to do it. Wanted to talk about uh, equanimity and peace in the mind and uh, experiences of peace in the mind. 
I was thinking about that as I, I was getting ready to come this morning, and I thought, well, I thought about six or seven different kinds of ways to introduce it. And I was thinking about Gil Franzel's way of te- teaching equanimity, where he says, um, equanimity is the ability to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. And I, 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 practically every week, I think I say that, because isn't that true? I say it practically every week. I love it. It's my favorite thing to say, because it so interests me that that piece of next, when the mind gets frightened, uh-oh, what if Nate Silver on 538 says it went two points the other way? And it's ah, oh, but then he might get elected. Then this, 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 this. I don't know. And maybe the two points was a mistake today, and tomorrow he'll say four points the other way. But in the meantime, my mind is so, if it doesn't have enough equanimity in it, is so ready to jump at any kind of allure. You want to worry about this? Worry about this. You want to get excited about this? Yeah, get excited about this. Everybody laughs because how many people here have a habit of worrying? Yeah. So how many people have a habit? This is not, I wouldn't even look. How many people have a habit of obsessive worrying that they would think about? Yeah. So they get a, they call up something or other or they hear from somebody. For they, this, you know, cell phones are a big help these days, except, except when they're not. You call somebody who you, you know has a cell phone, someone who's related to you, who has the news that you have to have to cause you to calm down, and you call, and then they don't answer. And you leave a message. This is mom. I need to know da 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 da. Let me know as soon as possible. And they don't call back. <laughs> so, isn't that, I mean, everybody, isn't that cause for. That's it. And in the meantime, your mind starts to construct could be this, could be that, could be this, could be that. Very rarely have I had a construct. They ran into somebody and they immediately fell in love and they're just enjoying that sensation and so excited about having re-met each other. They're going to have a whole life together. It's going to be great. And they got three job offers in the mail at the same time. That doesn't happen. You think about catastrophes that could have happened. So what to calm down the mind in between some stimulus, the stimulus is phone doesn't get answered, and catastrophic feelings flooding the mind and body. How to, how to get that? There's actually, if, if a person spends a fair amount of time uh, really watching the habits of their mind, you get to see that the habit is hearing something or seeing something or a, a particular event like phone not being answered, and the mind got phone not being answered, uh-oh, and right away going from phone not being answered to it's a calamity. And in the phone not being answered moment, it's possible if one is alert enough and there's enough equanimity in the mind, say, wait a minute, you don't know yet. Let's see what happens next. Let's wait five minutes. Let's call again later. Let's do something else in between. Because by and large, most of the time, you call again, they're there. Or they call you after a certain amount of time. Sometimes it's dire, but not most of the time. Most of the time, it's the imagination that's frightened us. And I think there are two things that go into calming the dire. One is the truth is always part of it. The truth is sometimes it might be. It might be dire this time. And if it is, you'll know about it and you'll deal with it. If it isn't, this is a lot of fatigue that you're inflicting on your mind. 
So I can say to myself, you know, you don't know yet. We'll know soon. You can wait a little bit. We have a, in my family, we have a, um, we say to each other soon, because one of my grandchildren, uh, who was particularly alarmed about his mother leaving, and one of his grandmother or one of his aunts would be babysitting, and he'd be, oh, quite a while, okay. And after a while, he'd notice his mother really wasn't there. Some, you know, half hour, an hour. And he'd suddenly get really distraught. Where's, where's my mother? And we'd say to him, you know, Mom will be ho- Mama will be home soon. And he would look at that magic word, <laughs> listen to it, and he'd say back, soon. And we'd say, that's right, Colin, soon. He'd say, soon. So when we want to reassure somebody, we say, it's happening soon. And we, it brings up the whole story. Colin, who's 29 years old now, is still hearing, soon. <laughs> and it always comes along with the story of Colin and the alarm. But the, 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 the same, soon is like next. Let's see what happens next. This is not the end. This is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. Next is a very stabilizing thing in the mind. So I think it, it takes two pieces. It takes the concentration that has a certain amount of stability that says, okay, I can wait till what's next. And it has the other piece of next of it could be a relief, the news, and it could be dire. But the other part of wisdom is knowing things happen in this world. Sometimes it is terrible. And sometimes terrible things happen to people. And then something else happens and something else. It doesn't unterrible the terrible. In any big room with enough people in it, there's somebody whose uh, child died at some time, which we think about, this is the worst that could happen. Often it's the worst. I once said that to a woman with whom I was sharing a flight cross-country, and she was telling me about uh, that she was going to her granddaughter's wedding, and uh, she was particularly going, she was elderly, she said, I'm going because my daughter, who's the granddaughter's mother, died two years ago. And so I'm really going in the place of her mother. Uh, so I, I think, wow, uh, was that really hard for Was that the worst thing that ever happened to you, having your daughter die? And she thought about it for a while. I don't know why I asked it. It was way too intimate. Anyway, I shouldn't have, but she thought about it like it was worth thinking about. And she said, no, it was worse when my husband died. So you don't know anything about anybody. I don't know if it's worse. And you don't know. Mostly things, terrible things happen to people. One of the things I, I want to read you, Thomas Merton. One of the things I did yesterday and the day before was I was at uh, New Year's services at my synagogue. And at the end of, of any service, actually, but the end of a whole morning service, as is always true of any service, they say all those people who had a person uh, close to them, an intimate relative, die in the last 11 months. Please stand up. Maybe 20 people in the room stand up. It's a lot, a lot of people. A lot of people. And then you realize it happens to people, and here they are, and they're back. 
all the time we have, we have uh, uh, proof around us that things happen and people continue on. But then when we think about it, we think, oh, if that happened to me, I couldn't continue. But mostly people continue. That's another piece of wisdom that we don't know. We have to be reminded of. People die. People get sick. Accidents happen. It doesn't mean you get happy about them. It means that, that, that um, I often talk about my friend Martha, who said, I suffered with this cancer, you know, why me? Until I realized, why not me? Some people get cancer, and I'm one of them. So I'm not any happier about dying, but I'm not suffering so much. What do you have to do in your mind to have that kind of wisdom? She would not have said about herself that she was enlightened, but it was very helpful for her to remember that piece of wisdom. For a while, I used to say this is my favorite thing. Do you remember uh, in the uh, like? Do you remember the time when one of the questions people would ask each other was what would what was what would be the one book you would take with you on a desert island? Mm-hmm. Do you know why we don't ask that anymore? Everybody take your Kindle, or everybody take, more than the Kindle. You take your you take your telephone, you take your telephone, and you take a solar charger. <laughs> then you could be on a desert island for the whole rest of your life, you know, and never run out of stuff. So that what? You'd have the solar, so you say, hey, I'm on this desert island, come and get me. <laughs> Robinson Crusoe is finished. <laughs> no more desert island. <clears throat> this is Thomas Merton's Asian Journal. It was the answer that I used to give to what would be the book that I would take with me on a desert island. It's the last thing he wrote because it was a journal that he kept while he was uh, on pilgrimage in uh, various parts of Asia and India uh, after having been 27 years a monk in Gethsemane Monastery and become very interested. He had become very interested in meditation, in Buddhism and meditation, and principally in Zen, but also in Tibetan theory. And um, he visited various uh, lamas, Tibetan lamas in uh, Asia, and he visited the Dalai Lama, which is also in this book. But this is about, this is um, his visiting a particular uh, lama uh, whose name is Shatral Rinpoche. He said, we had a fine talk, and uh, all through it, Jimpa, the interpreter, laughed and said several times, these are hermit questions. This is another hermit question. We started to talk about Dzogchen and Nyingmapa meditation and direct realization and soon saw that we agreed very well. We must have talked for two hours or more, covering all sorts of ground, mostly around the idea of Dzogchen, but also taking in some points of Christian doctrine compared with Buddhist, the Dharmakaya, the risen Christ, suffering, compassion for all creatures, motives for helping others, but all leading back to Dzogchen, the ultimate emptiness, the unity of emptiness and compassion. That's an important phrase. I'm going to come back to it. The unity of emptiness and compassion. 
going, quotes beyond the Dharmakaya, beyond God, to the ultimate perfect emptiness. He said he had meditated in solitude for 30 years or more, and he had not attained to perfect emptiness, and I said I hadn't either. The unspoken or half-spoken message of the talk was our complete understanding of each other as people who were somehow on the edge of great realization and knew it and were trying somehow or other to go out and get lost in it and that it was a grace for us to meet each other. I wish I could see more of him. He told me seriously that uh, he thought that perhaps he and I would attain complete Buddhahood in our next lives, perhaps even in this life. And the parting note was a kind of compact that we would both do our best to make it in this life. I was profoundly moved because he's so obviously a great man, true practitioner of Dzogchen, the best of the Nyingmapa lamas, marked by a complete simplicity and freedom. He was surprised at us getting on so well and that he got on so well with a Christian. And at one point he laughed and said, there must be something wrong here. He said we'd probably both attain that Buddhahood in the next life, and we agreed to try to make it in this life. So what I wanted to talk about a little bit, and then he goes on to say I talked to him about LSD. He said that that you could have that realization of total emptiness. So we're going to talk about that emptiness. And he said that he, had, that he had had that realization, but it had to come from discipline and not from pills. I used to read that a lot. I used to also say my most famous thing, famous, my most, my most dear thing to read to myself, also about emptiness, was, is this, uh, by a man named Amadeo Solelaras, who's a teaching about what happens with mindfulness meditation. It says, you really have to cultivate a mindful, non-reactive observation of bodily and mental processes. That's what we're doing when we sit here quietly. Non-reactive to bodily and mental processes without self, and therefore, I lost the line, so as to develop an increasingly thorough awareness, undistorted by our usual desires, fears, and views, etc. You know, those, those, uh oh, what if the election, what if this, what if that, all our fears and views, undistorted by the fears and views of the true nature of our awareness, that everything is impermanent, without self, and therefore involving suffering on our part until we learn to let go. Then I've got this underlined. It is through mindful observation of what is actually there that the delusion which makes us perceive that which is impermanent and transient as permanent and lasting is gradually dispelled. Liberation consists in experiencing and understanding fully and clearly that everything is impermanent and seeing that there is quite literally... Nothing to worry about. I used to love that line. Don't you love that line? I actually uh, typed it out. 
what did I have done with it? I, 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 I made a Xerox of that and cut it out, and I got it uh, laminated in the days that you could laminate something in the Kinkos. I don't know what I did with it after that, but I was remembering that I think it was Blaise Pascal who had some vision of the unity of all creation, and uh, he wrote it on a little piece of paper and sewed it into the lining of his coat for the rest of his life, and he wore that as a jacket for the rest of his life, for which, at which point, I just collected stuff all week this week that I was going to bring, and where is this? This is William Butler Yeats. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a crowded London shop, an open book, an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and 20 minutes, more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. So those talk better than I can probably, about what emptiness really means. Really means empty of the sense of separate self. That sometimes the third understanding of the Buddha, you have to know everything's impermanent, you have to know that imperative in the mind is suffering, and you have to know causality. Everything has a, everything gives birth to something else, and as it disappears, becomes something else. It's a way of talking again about temporality, but it's again a way of saying there's nothing there. There's no separate thing. Emptiness doesn't mean life isn't happening. It means it's all happening. It's all happening, and there isn't a separate anything that's in us that's the cameraman behind the lens that's filming it and says, now I'll turn the camera that way or that way. We have the feeling that there's someone in there. And our language makes it sound like there's someone in there. We say, I am getting really angry. In, in Japanese, you don't say that, by the way. The Japanese construction of language is different. So you say things like, a lot of anger is arising. And I'm not, a, I'm, you know, I, I know only rudimentary Japanese, but I know that you can say a lot of anger is arising. Less anger is arising. Love is arising. Hunger is arising. Eating is happening. Talking is happening. All these things are happening, which is actually, I think the Buddha would say, what's going on? Eating is happening. Even thinking is happening. Storytelling is happening. Believing the story is also happening. And when the believing the story happens, do you remember, it was Plato's The Cave, wasn't it? You go in a cave, and you draw a tiger on the wall in the cave, then you come running out of the cave and you say, hey, there's a tiger in that cave. You know, that, that we are doing, that the tiger in the cave is a true thing. We are making our pictures and then frightening ourselves. Full time. <laughs> if this happens, it'll be bad. If that happens, it won't be bad. This Yeats poem I love, it very much reminded me of Pascal walking on the... Blaise Pascal's thing of it's, a, it's, a, it's alive, it's a flame, he said. It's burning. Really, the glory of God is active in everything is what he meant in further discussions of it. 
Merton had the same sort of discovery. He writes about it in a later book, um, or someone wrote about it, because he actually died during this particular trip to uh, Asia. He went to his room and took a shower and touched an electric fan and got electrocuted and died. And he was young. He was in his 50s. It was a very big, hugely felt loss in the, um, particularly in the, in the Catholic community and in the Catholic monastic community uh, because he, he was surely the most read uh, personality in the, in the, amongst devout Catholics in America in the, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. The book, The Seven-Story Mountain, which was his autobiography, which he wrote after he had become a monk, um, sold something like uh, seven million copies, a lot of copies. And the difference between, the, the, you know, I read Merton at just the right time in my own life. I read the, uh, I read the Seven Story Mountain early on, and I was so moved by uh, how, uh, how fierce and devout he had become. He had converted from uh, being a Protestant to being a Catholic, and then he felt he really needed to be a monk, and then he felt he needed to be a hermit. And his, uh, and his uh, connection to uh, the, the story of Catholicism and the doctrine was so fiercely devout. Uh, I loved the book, uh, I think because I was moved by his devotion. I, th- I think it's something I wished I had. Uh, I found that very... Uh, appealing somehow. Later on, uh, uh, 10 years later, I guess, I think it was 48 that that was published. I'm I'm not sure. Um, In in a much, much later edition, uh, near the time that he went to Asia and died, uh, he's uh, writing in a foreword to a much, much later edition. I'm so embarrassed about how parochial I was and how limiting my, my vision was and how doctrinally parochial I was. And uh, He had tremendous uh, correspondence by letter from his monastic life with people and all kinds of... Uh, people in a cross-spectrum of religious... Uh, lineages, notably a lot of Buddhists. He says in this book, maybe I'll go back and study with Shatralan. He can be my guru. This uh, uh, Yeats poem, uh, while on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and 20 minutes more or less it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. There's a, an account in a later uh, Merton book where he talks about going into uh, uh, Louisville. I guess it was Louisville, where Gethsemane was, and having a doctor's appointment. I'm walking across the street and crossing at 4th and Walnut, so that the the experience is called Merton's 4th and Walnut experience, where it's much like Yeats, where he said, in the middle of crossing the street, I realized that all of these people... Well, life, and, and myself a part of it, 
that there was nothing separate, no, and that I was not separate, that this was all humanity and all life happening, and, uh, and the same ecstatic kind of experience as Yeats had, and I guess as Blaise Pascal had, uh, just the idea that the sense of me in here is watching all of this shifts from a figure, from that, to this is happening, life is happening, and this is part of it. This breathing, thinking organism is part of it. When, I, when we were sitting today, and I gave that instruction in that way, could you, well, you, did you um, experiment with how it is to think I am breathing, or breath is happening and awareness is meeting it? Anybody try to do that? Yeah. How, well, how was it? Good? Good. All right. I thought about food the entire time. <laughs> I thought about food. You thought about food? The entire time. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, tell me your name. Valerie. Valerie. And, you know, there's no rule about what you should think about, but you were probably hungry. And probably hungry. Ice cream was happening. Ice cream was happening. You know, but I think, no, I not only think, I actually feel quite sure that to the degree that I know that things happen, not that I am doing this, but things are happening. If, uh, uh, if the email... If the email doesn't arise, the email is not in my, uh, in, in my uh, mail when I check and I'm expecting it. It's not there. And I have a thought. Uh, they should have sent an email. I, you know, they said they would. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder if they're all right. And I feel a little bit of a frisson of concern. If I can think to myself, uh, alarm is arising. Alarm is arising. Alarm is arising. Remembering to take a breath is happening. Look at that. Worry just almost happened, and it didn't, because I caught it just before it did. It's not me. I, I stopped actually saying uh, I'm a uh, black belt warrior. Because I, I seriously, I used to say it was funny. People laughed. But I decided it wasn't good for me to say that because it stuck me in a role of being a black belt warrior. I'd much rather say, I am a person, or this is a person. Well, that sounds weird. It sounds like the people who talk about themselves in the third person. <laughs> it used to be true that worry was the most, uh, fretting was a most common response for me. Me is a good word to this. Most, worry was a most common response uh, to ambiguity. They were like, you know, the distress of ambiguity. I don't know what's happening. Uh-oh, could be this, could be that, could be that. But it's not so much anymore. Actually, what's the truth is the worry thought arises. Aha, I haven't had the email from them. They might be in trouble. They might, but probably not. Probably this is your lifelong worry that just leaped into happening. I don't have to own it, both because it, it makes me a little bit of distance. It's maneuverable. It's like uh, if, I, if I got hives in a, 
<laughs> from cat, or if I broke out in a rash, or my, my nose got stuffed from cat fur, and I went into somebody's house, I don't have to say, I, you know, my body can't, can't be in this house, because it's got cat, that's not a good, it's not as good as an example as I'd like to be. But I don't want to own it. Certainly the, not the only thing that's true about me is I'm allergic to cat. Actually, I'm not, but... Uh, <laughs> But that, you know, a lot of things are true about me, and I don't want it worrying to be a mark that I've taken on as immutable. Short, I will always be. But, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, not a pro- that's not problematic, you know, and I don't worry about that. But, uh, but I'd like not to worry. So here's, here's the thinking. What makes people not worry? This business of knowing things are what they are, is what the Buddha said, to the degree that we know that everything arises and passes away. It's always so noble to, um, to read wonderful stories about people on there uh, who are dying. You think, oh, I couldn't say that. But why not? Probably we could. Probably many more people say really noble things at the end, and don't actually, not so noble, but say wise things at the end. Just like death happens. And I think it was William Saroyan said, I always knew everybody died. I just didn't think it was going to happen to me. And I think that we all do. But to say, you know, it's happening. You know, I don't want to actually even spend any time figuring out what should be the very best thing to say because there are books of people's very best final utterance. I don't want to do that as too. <laughs> On the other hand, would I miss the opportunity? <laughs> My daughter said I should say housework is a waste of time. That, that, that would be a good final utterance. But, uh, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. Remember about the wise, uh, wise intention that we started with, that we actually have been going around and around about these three times, because I started by saying that everything hung on intention. I didn't say that... Um, Nyoshal mm. Kempo Rinpoche said that and when I heard him say that we were talking about it last week in terms of the Eightfold Path Nyoshal Kempo said that everything hangs on intention and I was so excited when I first heard that of course it does because nothing happens without we should have an intention that does it so that must be the most important of the Eightfold Path and then I realized, and that was you know, really last week, the, I hope what was most important is that every other part of the Eightfold Path is holding up right intentions so that you can't really say it's intention. It's intention that's bolstered by mindfulness and concentration and effort and all of them. But really intention. And I, I just remembered this week that I, uh, I, have, I have two friends who married each other over a decade ago and uh, used as their marriage vows the, the, uh, the five vows that we take as uh, 
lay practitioners. We'd say, I vow not to harm living beings and not to take anything that isn't given. And they, they personalized that. So their marriage vows was they looked at each other and they said, because I love you, I promise not to harm you in any way. Or I promise to take good care of you. They, they, they reword, because I love you, I won't take anything that you aren't freely offering. Because I love you, I'll talk to you kindly and honestly. Because I love you, I'm going to treat your body lovingly and caringly. Because I love you, I'm going to keep my mind free of confusion, which would get in the way of my doing any of those things. And uh, I didn't know until some years later that they have gotten up every morning since they got married, which is more than a decade, and said those vows to each other every morning. I think to myself, that's really good. And I come home and I actually, this is, you know, talking out of place. I say, you know what you ought to do, what Dwayne and Sarah do. That's a good thing to do, get up every morning and say that to each other. Yeah, that's a good thing. But we don't do it because it's not, you know, not that we aren't nice to each other, but it's not the habit. But it'd be a great habit. It'd be a great habit because behavior does follow intention. If I have the intention not to say I should have, I got really good at that. Do you remember that? I decided I wasn't going to say I should because it makes you feel bad if I should have this or that. I wish I had is a much kinder way to say that to myself. And I did that, and I'm pretty good. I think now, maybe two years later, I don't say should anymore. I think. I think. This is right intention. Right intention denotes thoughts of selfness, selfless renunciation or detachment, thoughts of love and thoughts of nonviolence, which are extended to all beings. It's very interesting and important to note here that thoughts of selfless detachment Love and nonviolence are seen as an aspect of wisdom. This clearly shows that true wisdom is endowed with these noble qualities, and then all thoughts of selfish desire, ill will, hatred, violence are the result of a lack of wisdom. In all spheres of life, whether they are individual, social, or political. I wanted to read that particularly because we're in this political season. I had one more thing that I wanted to read to you. Not it. Ah. This is Wendell Berry. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labor and mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns and trees move.
my favorite line doesn't, you may have another favorite line, but I love that line, my tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Uh, there's, a line in, um, there's a line in the Metta Sutta that says, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways doesn't mean that we stop our lives. We just stop being burdened by them. I really think that the whole message of being here on a, on a weekly basis or just in the day and then going out and doing the rest of our lives is about being able to live in the world in the middle of it, unburdened by duties, having duties, but unburdened. My tasks lie where I put them, like cattle asleep in the field. So I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I've forgotten. I think... It's, I know for sure it's the day after the election. I'm not sure about the second. Uh, I think I might be here the week before. I'm here the week before. And the day after. I planned that. <laughs> I, because I was last four years ago and four years before that. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. If you haven't come before, I'm so glad that you came. Come again. We are always here. Oh, wait. What? I just want to tell you... Joanne Green asked me, the Buddhist, to come speak at Yom Kippur at the temple next Wednesday at Yom Kippur. I'm speaking my story. Where? What? In the, in the, in the, in the, in the temple. Yes? Yeah. yeah. Which is yours? Where, where do you go? Where are you? What? I live in San Rafael. You live in San Rafael? Yeah. Oh, all right. But, I was, but I've been studying Torah for about four years at Bordet Salon. Oh, wow. So, so we'll see each other next Wednesday. Joanne wants me to talk my Buddhist story about what I've been learning at Bordet Salon. So that's fantastic. I will definitely be there all day next Wednesday. Oh. Wait a minute, it's next Wednesday. I can't possibly be... No, that's Donald is here. Yeah, okay, I will be there. Oh, wow, because yeah. I'll see you all of a sudden. I'm so glad you told me. That's great, that's great. I know you have a friend at the Dominican convent. Yeah, I do. And I was helping, I was asked by the archivist uh, to go up there yesterday, and she was very nice, and we looked at this painting, and I'm going to try to help her identify it. But my question to you is, her name is... is Sister Patricia Core. Now, in an email, do you just say, Dear Sister Patricia? Is that the Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That, that's what I thought. Yeah, that Dear Sister question. Patricia, that's it. <laughs> Hi, this is my first time here, and I don't know how frequently I'll be able to come back, but I just wanted to say thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. So many things that you said touched me. I'm, I'm fairly new to Buddhism, yeah. so um, it was wonderful. Thank you. Oh, thank you for coming. And you came all the way from Sebastopol. Sonoma. Sonoma. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, come whenever you can, for thank sure. You. Thank you. I do go to Sonoma to so Oh, good. From that perspective as well. Thank you. I just want to let you know, I had a dream last night. Yeah? That's two giants more. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh, no, it's true. Oh, it's right.
rough but, to uh, be here and be on this Oh my God! Yeah. This, you know, it's like I feel like the enemy here. <laughs> so what time? What time is it? Five it's ten. Five. Yeah, five. Five. Yeah, five. Five ten. Here, also because it's yeah, it's, it's the eight it's there. Coast. So it should be a great game. It should be a great game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I tell you, the truth is, whoever is going to win that game probably won't beat the Cubs because I think it's the it's their year finally. Uh, uh, so anyway, it's very interesting because the boy who grew up next door to me, Ira, my friend Ira, you know Ira? Ira is now teaching a baseball course at like one of the Long Island junior colleges, uh, like a non-credit course. Uh -huh. And uh, it's fantastic because Ira was not, you know, a tremendous student in his student days. And he studies and he makes lesson plans and... Uh, he loves baseball, and he's hugely, hugely connected to baseball. He yeah. always was. Yeah. Knows everything about everything. He's been to every state. He goes, makes field trips. So, he's teaching a baseball course, these guys. As far as I know, only guys. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.